Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. This will be increment 142, and we're lifting a phrase from Hebrews chapters 6, verses 9 and 10, but we're actually going to go to the beginning of Hebrews 6. And I'm going to be kind of all over the map today, suggesting a lot of different things and proceeding from a lot of different angles and I think what it's going to do is give you, the listeners, an opportunity to discover and have some insights on your own, which is really the ultimate goal of these studies anyway. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity of presenting before us a door that no man can shut, that you have opened, and we have chosen to enter into that door to receive insight from your word. Use this time, Father, and we do entrust our spirits to you. Use this time to teach our human spirits by the Holy Spirit so that we may receive something of value and so that we may convey that value to others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a student at the University of Vermont, at first from 1969 to 73, and then again in 76, one memorable class I took was abnormal psychology. And it was very well taught. I remember our professor's name was Mr. Kessler. And in this class, we studied all kinds of abnormalities and aberrations in human thought and behavior. In one class, Mr. Kessler told us that he often had the experience of students approaching him after class after a certain psychological malady was described and they would anxiously ask him, is that me? <laughs> Almost invariably, he would have to assure them that no, that particular abnormality was not descriptive of them, of that particular student. And no, he wasn't teaching to address some abnormality in them. And so I, thought, I think of that often because a similar problem exists among Christians when they read the Bible or hear a sermon or hear a message in which they are not, in fact, being described or even directly addressed but they take it in that way in an unhealthy and sometimes self-damaging way. It becomes almost obsessive. Now we're going to see how this plays in Hebrews. And we're going to begin with Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, our translation so far. Therefore, leaving the merely anticipative word about the Messiah, let's be brought to completion, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith in God, teaching about ablutions, and laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and judgment in the age to come. And we'll do this if indeed God allows. Now put this on the level of our own time. He is talking about being able to teach, as a pastor teaches, about mature doctrines, a more complete doctrine about the Messiah. But he's also depending upon God's permission. Will the Lord permit him to go on, and will he permit his audience to be carried on 
to a complete understanding. Now, on the level of our time, God is permitting this to happen. God is allowing this to happen now. He is allowing Christians and certain communicators of the word of God, the gospel, to be carried to completion and to speak a more mature word than has been spoken before characteristically in Christian history. So there's evidence in all places across the world today that a few people here and there are receiving spirit-born insights of the universally saving impact of Jesus and his act of self-sacrificing love. So, as I've often said, and as the prophet Zechariah said in 4.10, we mustn't despise small beginnings. There are indications that some are going beyond partial understanding to a fuller realization of who Jesus is, of what God has accomplished in him, and what Jesus has accomplished in God and as God and as the man, Christ Jesus. A few people in a lot of places are realizing the vast implications of Jesus' mediation between God and all of humankind, even all of creation, which the unenlightened, and let me emphasize that, the unenlightened see creation as under existential threat because of climate change, they call it. The unenlightened see the earth and creation perhaps itself, but mostly the earth, as under an existential threat because of climate change. Even some of our military leaders are supposedly thinking in that direction. Now, there is a thing called entropy in the universe, but its cause is sin, not climate change. So my prayer is that may God allow the enlightenment of many people in many places and roll back the rolling blackout of the soul and of the enslaving ideologies that it is carrying in its wake. There is a rolling blackout of the soul, Ephesians 4, 17 to 18 describes it, and it blacks out any true light and prevents true light from shining in. But that kind of rolling blackout, which is taking over more and more minds today, can be rolled back by the light of God, the light that shines in the face of Jesus Christ at the preaching of the gospel of the glory of the Christ. So may God allow the enlightenment of many people in many places, and by doing so, roll back the rolling blackout of the soul and of the enslaving ideologies that it is carrying in its wake. What we call USSJC, the Universal Saving Significance of Jesus Christ, coupled with the UICC, the Universal Impact of the Cross of Christ, is what we might call a mustard seed. It's in what Jesus would call a mustard seed form right now. He called the mustard seed among the smallest of all seeds. But what begins like a mustard seed is destined to grow into a tree 
he said, using the word dendron in Luke 13, 19, or the largest of garden plants in Matthew 13, 31, in which the birds of the air can nest. So we must not despise small beginnings and realize that even the smallest seed can grow into a large tree in which the birds of the air can nest. So God is permitting in our time right now teaching pastor theologians to be brought toward a completion in the message that they're communicating. Of course, many are resisting. In some cases, it's an honorable resistance that people put up because they have not yet been fully convinced themselves and they want to leave room for God to convince them. So that's what I would call an honorable resistance to an insight. But others are resisting, making themselves the enemy of the cross of Christ and opponents of the message of its redemptive centrality and universal horizon. For ultimately, when you attack the universal horizon of the cross of Christ, you're attacking its centrality. The PT here, who is the author of Hebrews, is speaking for himself and for others of the apostolate. And by apostolate, we mean, of course, those who are sent to proclaim the word. And that really is everybody in the church, as we've ex- explained recently. And I want to do that again because there's a difference between evangelism and mission. Evangelism is found in Ephesians 4:11 and 12. And has to do with the upbuilding of the church and the encouragement of the church. Whereas mission is the occupation of every Christian. And it is their participation in the mission, the divine mission of the Holy Spirit in all the world. It's not just for a special class of missionaries or a special class of people called missionaries. But for all the church. And so... This PT is speaking for himself and others of the apostolate here. He will go on with his mature message of the implications of the archpriesthood of Jesus, if God permits. And that means if God considers that it would not just be watering a garden of weeds. That's what Hebrews 6, 7 to 8 says. The rain that comes often upon a garden does so to produce vegetation that's useful for the farmer. But if it produces weeds and thistles and thorns, then why water it? So he permits this. He's permitting the watering of the seed because he's anticipating good fruit. Now, we've spoken of this before, and it bears repetition and bears expansion, really. Gilliamus Estheus and we've seen his theory before, that's G-U-I-L-L-I-E-L-M-U-S, and then Estheus, E-S-T-H-I-U-S. His hypothesis that Paul, the apostle, wrote the dispatch note and actually sent this homily to a particular group or groups of Christians is a very interesting theory for many reasons. It has much to recommend it. Albert Van Hoy makes a very good case, especially in the final sections of his commentary, pages 238 to 233 to 238, that Paul did write this dispatch note, Hebrews 13, 22 to 25. 
and that he did, in fact, send or dispatch this homily. Van Hoy gives many convincing literary proofs and support of this hypothesis that it indeed was written by Paul and that Paul was someone different from the author. And on page 34, Van Ho- 234, rather, Van Hoy wrote this in his commentary on Hebrews, quote, that the Apostle Paul would have appreciated the homily contained in the letter to the Hebrews is not unlikely when it is recalled that an explicitly sacrificial and implicitly priestly Christology is to be found in the sentence of the letter to the Ephesians that speaks of, quote, the oblation and the sacrifice that Christ made of himself to God in the odor of sweetness. That's Ephesians 5.2. In other words, Paul would have appreciated the homily that he's sending in a letter because it was an expansion on what he only hinted at in his epistles, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. In addition to this, therefore, I would add Paul's references to redemption through the blood of Christ, a phrase or at least a notion that he communicates in Ephesians 1.3 and 1.6-7. In fact, Ephesians 1.3 all the way to 14 constitutes one kind of run-on sentence, and it may be the first sentence of Paul's published epistles. So in in addition to what Van Hoy mentions of Ephesians 5.2, I would mention that the redemption through the blood of Christ, the beloved Son of God, Ephesians 1.3 and 6-7, and the propitiation expiation through the blood of Jesus in Romans 3.25 and 5.29 and other verses also indicate that Paul hinted at Christ being not only the priest but the victim in a unique and once and for all sacrifice. Hebrews alone expands upon this notion. Paul would likely have appreciated such a homily as an intelligent expansion of his own conception of a priestly Christology. Let's put that up here because that's what the rest of Hebrews is going to be up through chapter 10, a priestly Christology. And that's the main point of Hebrews, the main doctrinal point, the main theological point. And so Van Hoy understood this, and I would expand upon it greatly. Paul would have appreciated such a homily, again, as an intelligent and a reasonable expansion of his own conception of a priestly Christology, which he only hinted at in his writings. For example, Romans 8.34, he's not only risen, but also exalted and ascended and is making intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. Now, here's another observation made by Van Hoy that's even more striking and maybe even a little more surprising. He wrote this, and this will all be in print for you to follow with your own eyes. The opening sentence of the dispatch note, speaking of Hebrews 13.22, which calls on the addressees to bear with the homily has something surprising about it. Why this call, he says. And then Van Hoy says this, and I've seen no other commentators say this. 
The most likely explanation is that the writer of this dispatch note is aware of the presence in the homily of some very severe warnings. Those warnings, of course, are Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, and Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. And please notice what he says here, and I emphasized it in italics in my notes. In this homily, the presence of some very severe warnings that do not correspond to the situation that the addressees are in. So the homily was not written for them or intended to be sent in writing. If it is being sent to them, it is not for the warnings, and this is extremely important for the interpretation of Hebrews. If it is being sent to them, a particular set of people, it is not for the warnings. In other words, Paul takes this homily, wraps it up in a letter, dispatches or sends it by couriers to one or more churches, but it is not for the warnings in it that he sends it, but for the profundity of its doctrinal content. Now that is an important interpretive move in Hebrews, and I tend to think that it's the right one. In fact, when I get down to the distillation phase of Hebrews, and if I get to that distillation phase, I'm going to distill its doctrinal content and not so much leave out the exhortation or the warnings, but reveal that the true distilled purpose of Hebrews is the expansion on the priestly Christology, which involves Christ's mediation between God and all of humanity, and therefore the universal salvation and sanctification of all of humanity. This is a track I've, I'm just barely starting on that is the most significant track I've ever followed as a pastor teacher in 42 plus years. So, this is not only surprising, and the more we study, the more we come up with surprises, but it's surprisingly significant for our present so-called commentary on Hebrews for this reason. We have come to Hebrews, I think under divine direction, only after a fairly detailed study of Paul, which we called Better Call Paul, and after a study of Paul's epistle to the Romans, which we called Reading Romans with the Light On. And so if Paul did, in fact, write this dispatch note and endorse this writing as an expansion of his own priestly Christology, then for us to approach Hebrews through a great detailed study of Paul is extremely beneficial. If anything is a salient theme, a prominent or leading theme in the Pauline corpus of writings or the body of epistles by Paul, it is that they are collectively like the book of Revelation, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ's universally saving significance and of the universally merciful impact of his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. The second epistle of Peter attests to the fact that the wisdom given to Paul that was expounded in all his epistles 
has to do with the patience of the Lord, says the writer of Second Peter, the patience of the Lord that is equated with salvation. Second Peter 3.15. The author of Second Peter also noted that there were unlearned and unstable distorters of Paul's doctrine already at that time. That which is a feature of the entire Pauline corpus or body of writings is the reality of the Lord's endless patience, which equates to universal salvation. The Lord Jesus' endurance of the cross, Hebrews 12.2, which he underwent with unparalleled patience, also equates to age-abiding and universal salvation. Here's my point so far. Paul would surely not endorse and send a homily to a church or churches that would contain doctrinal content that contradicted his salient soteriological theme. He wouldn't have sent Hebrews if it contradicted his own universal understanding of Jesus Christ's salvation as saving work and mediation. So once again, this lays bare the ignorance and untruth of those who use these severe warning passages as alleged proof that Christians can so-called lose their eternal salvation. There are ideological and religious hellists all around us today. I'll say that again. There are ideological, that is, not necessarily religious, Hellists, people who like to consign other people to an irredeemable future and condition, and they are both ideological and religious hellists all around us today. And I'll be explaining that a little bit more as we get down the road. Secondly, Estheus, his reasonable proposition that Paul wrote this dispatch note, brings about a serious dialectic. Whereas the point was previously made that it appears that the importance of exhortation outweighs that of exposition in the Hebrews homily, this theory proposes a counterpoint, namely that the significance of the priestly Christology in fact outweighs the hortatory or warning and exhortational part of Hebrews. The dispatch note theory says much, therefore, about the destination of this letter and Paul's purpose for sending it. Remember, the writer didn't send it. Paul had a copy of it or the original as something written perhaps by a member of his apostolate, perhaps Barnabas, perhaps Apollos, but there are are, there's no way that we can truly definitively say who it was, but Paul had the homily. And he put in a note at the end, and it was Paul that dispatched it or sent it. Maybe he sent it to all the churches that he had written to before. Maybe he sent it to an individual. Maybe he sent it to a series of churches and intended it to be a circular. And so he would obviously say, I'm sending this. I'm only speaking briefly here at the end. And I want you to tolerate or put up with the part of it that isn't for you. In other words, to realize that part of it is an exhortation and a warning that isn't about you. 
So you're beginning to see my reference to the abnormal psychology class and to poor Mr. Kessler. The dispatch note, then, is extremely important, and its theory is important. I'm dealing with it as if it's true today. And so Paul is sending this homily, not primarily because of its exhortation or warnings, In fact, not even because of its warnings, but because of its doctrine, especially its priestly Christology, its understanding of Jesus Christ's mediation between God and all of humanity as a great archpriest who is both the priest and the victim of a once and for all self-sacrifice for sins. And so it's specifically, Hebrews is specifically important for its priestly Christology and soteriology or study of salvation. So when Paul says bear with, and this is Hebrews 13.22 specifically, bear with the exhortation, bear with it. By saying that, is Paul saying put up with the warning passages even though they are not for you or about you? And do not describe your situation. I think there's a good reason that that is, in fact, the case. In fact, the Greek verb deployed in Hebrews 13.22 is this word in the Greek. It's A-N-E-S-E-X, rather. E-S-T-H-E. A-N-E. Make that C-H. E-S-T-H-E. And the word comes from aneko, which means hold yourself back from. And so he's saying, listen, when you read this homily, I want you to hold yourself back from the exhortation or the specific severe warnings in it. A.T. Robertson actually gives that meaning, hold yourselves back from. If Paul wrote this dispatch note, He's telling his intended readers to hold themselves back from such warnings that are found in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, or 6, 4 to 8, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, and 12, 15 to 17. Hold yourself back from these while you're reading this homily because Paul believes, and indeed he knows, that such warnings are not explicitly for them, those whom he intended to receive this epistle. Now, you say, you're putting a lot on this theory. Well, wait a minute. Even if Paul did not write this dispatch note, the PT who wrote the uh, the homily also indicates that such warnings are not specifically intended for his audience. And they're going to see that in Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. And it's repeated again in Hebrews 10.39, where he explicitly says, you are not of those who, by unbelief, go into perdition. You are those who believe to the saving of the soul. And so, even the PT, if we do away with Paul's dispatch note, even the PT, the writer of Hebrews, did not intend to show these warnings to be for his audience. In other words, he did not see them in a condition that required such severe warnings, but that they are a matter in a manner of speaking 
they are talking about the salvation that he's intending to magnify, but he's magnifying that great salvation through the back door, we might say. So again, if Estheus is correct, when we consider the entire body of the Pauline epistles, the salient theme, and by that I mean leading and prominent theme, that emerges is one of salvation, one in which all, all of humanity receives salvific mercy from the God of unrestricted benevolence, passionate philanthropy, and saving mercy mediated through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his saving event. Paul has sent this homily, written by a co-laborer in the apostolate, to a group or group of Paul's choosing. So perhaps it would have been intended for all the churches to whom Paul had previously written. Who knows? I don't know. You don't know, but it's a good theory. At this point, then, I want to wax pastoral. That means I'm going to get all pastoral now on you. One of the most problematic things we do as Christians is to unhealthily obsess about certain things in the Scriptures. We do the... Now, that I'm talking about obsession now, not concentration on the Scriptures. I'm talking about obsession about certain things in the Scriptures unhealthily. We do the opposite of hold ourselves back from what is not specifically about us or directed to us. Instead, we dive right into it as if it's all about us. It's kind of a reverse arrogance or a converse arrogance. It is certainly true that all Scripture... All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in right action or rectitude, 2 Timothy 3.16. But not every warning and command in scripture, for that matter, is to you and about you. For example, in Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people is a call from God to his people living in apostate Jerusalem on the eve of her destruction. It isn't directed to you, an audience in 2021. You have to hold yourself back from it in order to understand what it's saying and to whom it's saying it, or you'll misinterpret it. And there's been people that have obsessed with this to the point where they thought this meant they were supposed to leave their church or to leave a certain organization or leave a country or something like that. It's obsessiveness. And so this gives new meaning to the commonly used jab that one gives another. It's not all about you. So you have to hold yourself back from that and appreciate it for what it is in its historical context. Now, I'm saying this as a pastor, and I'm saying it as one who, when I was a young believer, I not only did not hold myself back from and look from an objective standpoint at Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and on like passages, but instead I became obsessive about those passages and applied them directly to me. 
I didn't get too much help from pastors who I was listening to and people I was reading who said that I could lose my salvation and added the very comforting fact that once you lost it, you could never get it back. So combined with bad teaching, which taught that Christians can lose their eternal salvation and never get it back, my obsession turned to despair. It was an unspeakable despair. I couldn't even check out under my own power because I was afraid of the afterlife. So when I learned through a lot of hard knocks, I learned to hold myself back from such passages. And by that means, stand at a distance, take a look at them from every angle, and see that you don't need to obsess about this. And the reason is, I hold myself back from them because the Holy Spirit tells me to. And if it applies, I let him apply it to me. And there's never been a time when the Holy Spirit has applied a passage to me in correction where he didn't do it with eternal gentleness. Even though it had great impact, it was gentleness and grace, not condemnation. And so once I was able to hold back from such passages and realize that they weren't about me, I was able to appreciate their inestimable value. In Hebrews, I was able to respect the rhetorical value of such warnings, which would be applicable to individuals or groups or groups who were actually thinking. In other words, this would be actually applicable to a group or individuals who were actually thinking and then about to intend to return to the Levitical system of sacrifices and were actually on the verge of intending to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in A.D. 66 or 67. And that would have put them right smack in the middle of the Roman invasion and the Roman perimeter around Jerusalem that would have ended in fiery destruction of the temple. They would have been part of it. So if you want to apply it to somebody, that's exactly about whom it would be. Even in that case, though, even in that case, take the case, and this didn't happen, incidentally, because there's no record under Josephus or anyone else that there was a Christian left in Jerusalem when the abomination of desolation came down and destroyed it and burned the temple and destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands and enslaved about 900,000 people and destroyed cities like Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida on the way. But even in the case, take the case of someone who says, I, in order to avoid the shame of ostracism in my time, I'm going to renounce my confession of Jesus as Lord and Son of God, deny his once and for all sacrifice, take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem so that all of my contemporaries can see me doing it, offer a sacrifice in the temple, celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover in Jerusalem. And, and all this I'm doing, this writer said, if you were to do that, you'd be crucifying afresh to yourself the Son of God. 
and announcing publicly that he needed to be crucified again. Even in that case, if someone had done that, however, the writer was not warning him about going to hell, but about going into the hellish historical disaster that was about to overtake old Jerusalem. So third, there's a third thing here. Another striking and most significant observation, I think the most significant observation I've seen in writings outside of the Bible in about 10 years, is something that Bernard Lonergan wrote all the way back in approximately 1935, when he was only about 31 years old. When he was writing about, and there are two chapters on this in the volume 25 of his collection of writings. He was writing about something in two chapters that he himself called Pantone Anakephaliosis. And it looks like this in English transliteration. Pantone Anakephaliosis. And that's a similar concept that means all without exception. Anakephaliosis means summary, summing up or recapitulation of all things. And of course, it's a phrase that comes from Ephesians 1.10. Now, if Ephesians was, according to Framing Paul by Douglas Campbell, early on in Paul's career, then it is the basic tenet of Paul, a recapitulation of all things. When Lonergan was writing on the Pantone Anakephaliosis, he wrote, quote, a metaphysic is the necessary key to St. Paul. And he explained that by that he meant that the key theme in Paul's writings was a metaphysic, he calls it, of human solidarity, first in Adam and then in Christ. I call it a salvific solidarity, of all of humankind in Christ. This salvific solidarity is most clearly manifested in passages like Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. It's mo- it comes to a sharp peak in those two places. But it permeates all of Paul's church epistles as well as the pastoral epistles, so-called, which are attributed to him. That means First and Second Timothy and Titus. Similar to the Pauline corpus, or that by that I mean all the body of Paul's 13 epistles, similar to the Pauline corpus, Hebrews emphasizes the saving or salvific solidarity of Christ with all of humankind. Beginning with Hebrews 2.9, he tasted death for everyone. 2.11, he who sanctifies, they who sanct- are sanctified are all of one entity, one solidarity. Hebrews 2.9, 2.11. However, Hebrews does this while greatly expanding upon a priestly or high priestly Christosoteriology or a Christ-centered salvation. The importance of the theme of pantone anakephaliosis Introduced by Paul in Ephesians 1, 8 through 11, especially verse 10, from another sentence in Ephesians, is inestimable. The Hebrews' homily 
does not betray that theme. In fact, it plays on the subject innovatively. Hebrews even becomes in one way the climactic installment of New Testament revelation. I'll say that again. Hebrews even becomes in one way the climactic installment of the New Testament itself with its testimony of Jesus being designated on the grounds of a divine oath, an archpriest forever like Melchizedek, after offering himself as the once and for all and forever sacrifice by which sin was put away. Sin itself, the sin of the world, was put away. Did the Lamb of God put away the sin of the world? Did the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, take away the sin of the world? Your lamb right he did. It's one thing to be damn right. It's better to be lamb right. Hebrews explains this. While engaging with the Old Testament scriptures like no other New Testament document. That's how important Hebrews is. All things are to be redemptively summed up in Christ, who is a great archpriest for the age like Melchizedek. This sums up the wisdom of God in a conflation of Ephesians and Hebrews and of the whole New Testament for that matter. So again, what am I saying? I'm saying if this Pantone anakephaliosis is the key to understanding all of Paul, and this means the summation and the recapitulation of all things in the heavens and earth through the blood of Christ's cross, then where do you find the audacity to interpret Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 and Hebrews 10, 26 to 31 as somebody losing their eternal salvation and being knocked out of this Pantone anakephaliosis or or what Acts 3.21 calls the apocatastasis panton, the restoration of all things, or what Colossians 1.20 calls the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and earth based on the peace that was made by the blood of Christ's cross. Who in the hell are you to say that, that someone's excluded? When Jesus said, pick up every crumb of bread so that nothing will be lost in John 6.15. So, that's pastoral, that's exhortation, that might even be considered by some in a delicate mood of political correctness to be rather crude. Now, I'm going to wind down for today because I've suggested quite a few things. What about the level of our own time? This doctrine of a salvific Human solidarity has a powerful purpose in our own time. For in our own time, ideological hellists, and you'll see why I call them that, sell the insidious untruth that human beings of a certain epidermal tinge or tint of skin are irredeemably oppressors and incorrigibly guilty and consigned to an eternal condemnation, a hell of irretrievable remorse. This is a current example of Marxist or Bolshevik control, which rules by intellectual terrorism. These ideologues also consign people of another skin shade, to the hopeless hell of victimhood. 
as is standard with Pharisaical Bolshevism, the only escapees of this fate of hell, an irretrievable and irredeemable place, is the doctrinaires and the elitists themselves who have set themselves up as the arbiters and judges of all people. They escape the incurable condition of humanity that everyone else is in through their adherence to the gospel, so-called, of their own twisted ideology. They become the oligarchs who rationalize their own self-justification and who gleefully profit from the misery of others who, which they themselves have helped to increase that misery. They these new pharisaical Bolsheviks or Bolshevist Pharisees are the true oppressors and tyrants. It is these who are content to shed blood in hate and who despise the true gospel, the narrative of the shedding of blood by love. We ought to hate with vehement hatred their ideology while we love the self-deceived holders of it and wish and pray for them to see the true light of the gospel of the glory of the Christ. For God deals with them as he does with all the evils of the human race through the law of the cross. By converting those evils into a supreme good, just as Saul of Tarsus was converted from an avid and avowed enemy of the church of God to a master builder of it. These self-deceived ideologues are among the all of humankind for whom we as Christ followers and imitators of God are to love. Now speaking of love, we are urged to live in a dynamic state of love which I call the free state of soteria which we introduced in their last increment, increment 141. And so we will continue from here in our next increment, and we want to take a look one more time at Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, and then into 9 and 10 in order to show it in its true perspective and so that you can see something there that's not about you, but that glorifies Jesus Christ in an unusual and rhetorical way. So we thank you, Father, for this opportunity, and we pray that you'll use that which was proclaimed and taught today to the benefit of many and to the expansion of the gospel of the glory of the Christ. And to this end, we pledge ourselves and our commitment, and we entrust our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen.